0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Laws and Blessings. In the first half, R. Kent Crookston shares his address, The Natural Law of Blessings. Then in the second half, David A. Thomas speaks on A Law Upon Which All Blessings Are Predicated.
1: Before I get started, let me draw your attention to the lovely flower on my lapel. It reminds me that we have just passed through the March equinox, and that signifies the first day of spring. And that reminds me of a BYU devotional that I attended back when I was a freshman. President Ernest Wilkinson was conducting, and just like today, we were on the verge of spring. Ah, spring, President Wilkinson said. What a wonderful season. Spring is that time of year when a young man's mind turns to what a young woman has been thinking about all winter long. (laughs) As you learned from my introduction, I am an agronomist. A considerable part of my career has been devoted to improving the production of corn. I begin my remarks with an insight that I have gained from my corn research, an insight which helps me to understand the key to obtaining blessings from heaven. This simple bar graph shows corn yield as influenced by the previous crop. The best yield on the left was obtained from corn that was grown on a field that had not been planted to corn for five years. The next best yield is from a field on which corn was grown alternately with soybeans. The most depressed yields are all from fields that had been planted to corn following a previous planting of corn for two, three, four, five, or ten years in a row. The graph illustrates what is referred to among crop scientists as the rotation effect. Those of you who grow tomatoes have learned that they will not yield their best if you repeatedly grow them in the same spot in your garden year after year. A veteran Idaho potato farmer once said that the best rotation for potatoes was a thousand years of sagebrush and one year of potatoes. (laughs) There are two significant conclusions that my students and I gathered from our 20 years of research with corn. The first was that the rotation effect was unfailingly reliable. Rotated corn always—not just sometimes—but always gave the best yields. No matter how we modified our management or inputs of fertilizers or pesticides, we could not lift the yield of continuous corn to the level of a first-year crop. Secondly, although we did gain some insights, we were never able to determine why that first-year yield boost occurred. We evaluated every physical and biological factor that we could think of. We finally accepted that we were working with the law of nature and that we could not divert Mother Nature from her decreed course. It is about the laws of Mother Nature or about the laws of Mother Nature's father that I will speak today. We might refer to Mother Nature's father as Grandfather Nature or we might call him God. I now switch from corn to my family. The youngest of our seven children is a nine-year-old girl named Sadie. Sadie's favorite home-evening game is what we call the blessing game. To play the blessing game, we need only our hands and a small treat. M&Ms are good, or raisins. When Sadie starts the game, the rest of us place our hands on our laps, cupped open, and we shut our eyes. Sadie then goes around to each of us one by one and either places a treat in our hands or passes us by, leaving our hands empty. When she's finished her round, she calls for us to open our eyes and declare whether we were blessed with a small treat or not. Once we discover who was blessed and who was passed by, we try and ascertain the law or the condition of the blessing. Did Sadie give a raisin to only those who in the circle who had shoes on, or maybe those who had slept in the tent the night before? You see, some of the qualifications are elusive and we have to ask for clues. When someone finally guesses the common qualifying prerequisite of the blessed ones, it is that person's turn and we all close our eyes and cup our hands again. One condition of the game upon which Sadie's father insists is that each time we play it we read three scriptures. The first is from D&C 78, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. The second is from D&C 130. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated, and when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. The third is from D&C 132. For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the condition thereof as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. As we read these scriptures in our family home evening, we like to consider the blessings that Heavenly Father has in His hands and how they must differ from Sadie's M&Ms. I am going to quickly review a couple of Heavenly Father's irrevocably decreed blessings. The first is from section 62 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Nevertheless, ye are blessed, for the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon. And they rejoice over you, and your sins are forgiven you. Interesting that the angels in heaven record our testimonies and look upon them and rejoice over us for having borne them. It's remarkable that our sins are forgiven by the bearing of testimony. Just like the corn rotation effect, I have not figured out how this works, but I believe it does. For just three verses later, in section 62, we find Quote, I, the Lord, promise the faithful and cannot lie. Section 78 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes an exceptional blessing for the simple act of maintaining a thankful heart. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him even an hundredfold, yea, more. The scriptures are well sprinkled with examples of blessings that seem extravagant in proportion to their qualifications. We have the windows of heaven opening with more blessings than we can accommodate just for paying our tithing. I'm going to focus the rest of my talk on one incredible conditional blessing laid forth by the Lord in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, known as the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. This is key to my message. I invite you to invest your attention. And also, all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom. Therefore all that my father hath shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Therefore all those who receive this priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. That was a lot of words. Did you notice it? Did you catch the simple qualifier that we need to meet in order to receive the blessing of the Father's kingdom and all that the Father has? It's in there, and it's powerful in its simplicity. Sisters, I am completely confident that it is there for you to observe and fully receive as well as the brethren. Let's go over it again. And also, all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. How do we receive the Lord? He tells us in the next phrase. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me. There it is. That's the qualification. Receive the Lord's servants. If we receive the Lord's servants, we receive the Lord. And if we receive the Lord, we receive the Father. And when we receive the Father, we receive the Father's kingdom and all that the Father has. Bear with me now while I explore with you the implication of the oath and covenant that the Father makes with those who receive the servants of his Son. And let's not overlook the fact that this is an oath and covenant which the Father cannot break, neither can it be moved. I'm going to tell five stories. All of them are true. The first story takes place 3,000 years ago. It started with a lad who was of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look upon, and of whom the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. He was the lad who put his hand into his bag and took thence a stone and slang it, and smote one Philistine in his forehead, so that the Philistine fell upon his face to the earth. Yes, this was David, who returned from the slaughter of the Philistine to encounter the women coming out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing with instruments of music, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more than the kingdom? And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Then we have Saul casting his javelin in jealousy at the young hero, saying, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David thenceforth avoided out of Saul's presence. The part of the story I want to focus on is the part where Saul, hearing that David was in the wilderness, took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. This is the part where David and his men were hidden in the very cave into which Saul entered to take a nap. And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Now, under these circumstances, what thoughts must have passed through David's head? It was obvious to David that Samuel and the Lord had rejected Saul, that Saul was a belligerent and mean-spirited man whose principal activity was to hunt David for his life that the people of Israel loved David, that David was their hero, and most of all that he, David, had been selected by God and anointed by the prophet to replace Saul as king. So what did David do? The record tells us that he crept forth quietly and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe. And when Saul rose up out of the cave and departed, David let him go a safe distance and then called after him, holding up the skirt of the robe, saying, My lord, the king, And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Then, realizing what had happened, how his life had been in the hands of David and that David had spared him, and was at that moment kneeling before him, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Are we not impressed with the conduct of David? Under the circumstances, has he not acted admirably? But there are two more verses we must read. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. When I consider this story and the admirable perspective and actions of David, I am left in awe. I cannot think of another account which compares to this one as an example of honoring an anointed servant of the Lord even when that servant, by any accounting, did not appear worthy of it. My next story takes place in New Zealand, where my missionary companion and I were laboring in a suburb of the capital city of Wellington. I have changed people's names. We arrived at sacrament meeting one evening to discover the chapel completely filled. The branch president was being released. There were no seats left, so we stood in the back. I noticed, sitting on the last bench, a member of the branch who was inactive. His name was Jimmy Solomon. Jimmy drove a taxi, and I had seen him on the streets several times, usually with a cigar in his mouth. Everyone's here to see the change of guard, I thought, even Jimmy Solomon. After the retiring branch president had been given a vote of thanks, the mission president told the congregation that the Lord had called Brother Jimmy Solomon to be the next branch president. A gasp arose from the congregation. It seemed that everyone turned and looked at Jimmy. His head was down, and he was twisting a small cap in his hands. All who feel they can support Brother Solomon in this calling, please indicate with a show of hands. A few hands went up. Are there any opposed? The room was filled with hands. I had never witnessed such a thing. What do they do now, I thought. The meeting was adjourned. All who were opposed were invited into the Cultural Hall to share their concerns. My companion and I did not join the group. The next morning we learned that after much discussion Jimmy Solomon had been sustained and ordained the new president of the branch. About a week later my companion and I were standing on the corner of a busy street in Wellington and we noticed a familiar figure driving a taxi toward us. As he passed by we saw, to our disappointment, that there was a cigar in President Solomon's mouth. That was the last I saw of Jimmy Solomon before I was transferred. A year later, I returned to that same branch to perform a baptism. Following the service, we were invited to the home of a good brother, the brother who had been the branch president just prior to Jimmy Solomon. When we had finished our meal, he said, Come, there is something I want you to see. And we went with him down the street to the house of Jimmy Solomon. The room we entered was brightly lit, warm and full of the feeling of friendship. As I took Jimmy Solomon's large hand, I noticed his face. It radiated. He was enthusiastic about our missionary work and talked about his love for the temple. What happened? I asked the good brother as we left Jimmy's house a while later. Well, he answered, as you remember, it was a challenging time for all of us when Jimmy was selected to lead the branch. The high priest group got together. We all agreed. The Lord must have called Jimmy because none of us would have ever thought of it. And we reckoned that if the Lord had called Jimmy, it was our duty to sustain him. Together we went to him and assured him of our love and support. We volunteered callings. Jimmy threw away his cigar. He started acting like the leader that the Lord knew he was. And you know what? He went around to all of his beer-drinking buddies and got them started back to church, too. He's taken several of them to the temple. It's been wonderful. I couldn't have reached those men. And as you saw today, we're building a new chapel. The old one can't hold all of us anymore. That's the end of story two. Story three took place when I was a graduate student. I was standing before a chalkboard about halfway through my preliminary oral exam for the Ph.D. One of the examiners had discovered an aspect of my knowledge and training where I was weak, and he was proceeding to expose my ignorance. I recall very clearly how my thoughts floated above me, as it were, up out of my reach. And When the professor would ask me a question, my thoughts would begin to drift slowly down toward me. But before they could reach me, I would be hit with another question, and my thoughts would all retreat back up again. I lost all hope completely, and instead of answers to the questions, I began to consider how I was going to deal with failing this exam. Suddenly a different member of the examining committee broke in. Stop! That's enough! "'Brookston, come and sit down. It's my turn to ask questions.'" I returned to my chair, feeling that I had been plucked from the roasting pan only to be tossed into the fire. He who had ordered me to sit down was a biochemist, and biochemistry was a subject in which I was less fluent than the one I had just been floundering. But instead of biochemistry, the professor proceeded to ask me about my family, about my father's occupation. Once he could see that I was clear-headed again, he nurtured me through a discussion which led us into an area where I was able to serve as teacher to him. Soon another examiner took up where the biochemist had left off, and I blossomed with answers that came to me quickly, and I passed the exam. I've looked back on that experience a hundred times, and every time I do I wonder what might have become of me if that professor had not received me, had not calmed me, had not allowed me to demonstrate one of my strengths rather than leave me to wallow in my weakness. He will forever remain one of my saviors. Story number four is a short one. We were living in the city of St. Paul, which is home to one of America's great Catholic cathedrals. One of the archbishops of the Church presides there. One morning in the newspaper I read that the archbishop had been arrested for driving while intoxicated. I was startled. Later that same day one of my graduate students came to my office. She was a Catholic nun. Meaning to express concern and empathy, I asked her about the news of the archbishop. Oh, the dear, dear man, she replied quickly. I have been praying for him ever since we received the news. He is my archbishop. He needs my support. No sooner had I registered her sweet, supportive nature than a disturbing question darted into my mind. How would I have responded had the same news been printed about our stake president and the Catholic sister had been asking the question of me? Perhaps this story has made you uncomfortable. Let me be so bold as to move from the Archbishop and the stake president to the Prophet Joseph Smith. This will be story number five. It was late at night. I was alone on an assignment in Africa, and I was reading a book entitled Joseph Smith, the First Mormon, written by Donna Hill. It was a book that bore the mark of scholarship with hundreds of notes and references. In one of the later chapters, which was entitled Descend in Nauvoo, the author had documented what appeared to be unlawful actions and associated cover-up on the part of the Prophet in ordering the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. I checked the references. They appeared solid. I grew uneasy. A disturbing spirit entered the room. I shut the book. I turned out the light. I was troubled by what I was feeling. I wished I had never been given the book. And then suddenly all the noises of my mind went still. It was like a, a late winter afternoon when all the sparrows of the neighborhood seem to have gathered into one single tree and they go about hopping and chirping like it was a little sparrow conference or something. Maybe you have heard that. If you are like me, you don't notice it until something causes all the little birds to fall silent. They do that. Suddenly they all stop exactly at once. And then the silence is so conspicuous that you take notice. Well, my mind went silent like that. And into the silence there came what I could best describe as a scolding. So, the word said, you feel to reprove the actions of the prophet, do you? You are upset here in the darkness because someone wrote something in their journal suggesting that Joseph Smith was not perfect. Not perfect. Imperfection disappoints you. And just who do you think you are? What do you suppose you would have done had you been in charge in Nauvoo during those grim days? How would you have dealt with the apostasy, the enmity, the slander, the unending threats on your life? You expected perfection. You know better than that. Only Jesus was perfect. What imperfection would you have chosen for Joseph? Go ahead. You choose. What imperfection would you accept? He did have failings, you know. Some of them are documented right in the Doctrine and Covenants. And you—you you get up on your high horse and condemn him for being a mortal—shame on you." The chastisement continued, "'Your problem, young man, your biggest challenge in your Church life will be to accept those turkeys they call to preside over you at the local level in the Church. Turkeys is what you will be inclined to call them because they will make mistakes—some disturbing ones. Your test will be to overlook imperfections, especially in those that appear to you to be less qualified for office than you think you are. Now get down off your high horse and start being thankful for the life of an imperfect man who, as a prophet of God, has brought into your life treasures immeasurable. Be thankful for President Kimball who has struggled mightily with imperfections and gone on to earn and deserve the office of prophet and to serve as an inspiration to millions, including you and then the words stopped, and I slipped out from under my covers, and my knees found the floor, and I apologized. And I began pouring out a prayer of thankfulness for the Prophet Joseph Smith and for all that he had done for me. And I thanked the Lord for my bishop and for the time and effort that he spent in behalf of my family. And I expressed appreciation for teachers on low wages who taught my children in school and for politicians and judges struggling through the defects of imperfect systems on my behalf. And then I joyfully expressed thanks for the feelings of acceptance and appreciation that had moved into my heart, replacing criticism and censure. I trust that these few stories have helped you understand my feelings and perspectives related to the business of receiving the Lord's servants. You can see that I believe that the servants of the Lord are all around us and that we have opportunity to receive them every day. Actually, I have studied the qualifier and the promise within the oath and covenant of the priesthood for almost as long as I have studied corn, and like the corn rotation effect, I do not fully understand this promise—how such a modest qualifier can result in such an awesome blessing. But I do believe I have achieved some insight into how it works. Bear with me while we role play for just a moment. It's a hot day. You're in traffic, which is at a virtual standstill. You are late for your appointment. You are exasperated. On your right, a vehicle approaches. You stay close to the car in front of you. The car behind you stays close to you. Notice how you feel. Now see it differently. See yourself letting a space open up in front of you and you motioning the approaching vehicle to move in. Did you see a wave and a smile? Also notice this. The very instant we made the decision to open up and let the other driver in, something happened within us. I am sure you felt it. As soon as we decided to let the other car in, our way of being was altered. Would I be correct in suggesting that when we opened up a space in the traffic, our way of being became Christlike? And he who receiveth my servants receiveth me. The scriptures are full of this principle. From Matthew we have, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hunger and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? Or when saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Is it not clear that everyone with whom we associate—everyone, from beginners on the job to seasoned veterans who preside over us—all are benefited when we receive them and support them? even when we disagree with them. I am sure of it. I testify that whenever I have been able to humbly approach another person with whom I disagree with the resolve to be a comforter and a peacemaker that the Holy Ghost has accompanied me and that both the other person and I have been able to receive and support one another even though we have different perspectives. There is a two-way blessing involved in this. Both the one who does the receiving and the one who is received are blessed. Shakespeare put it well when he spoke through Portia to Shylock in the Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained. What Shakespeare is apparently saying is that when mercy is extended from one person to another, there is no filtering or holding back. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed... It blesses him that gives and him that takes. It's time to close. Let me summarize my message. The first concept I have hoped to develop is that the Father's hands are filled with blessings for us, and there are immovable laws which govern the delivery of those blessings. And whenever we are obedient to the law upon which the blessing is based, it will be delivered. Concept number two is that All that the Father has will be ours if we meet one simple qualifier. The simple qualifier is that we receive the servants of the Father's Son. The scriptures make clear that those servants include not only the prophets and apostles, but also all of our brothers and sisters who stand in need of our encouragement and support. I am convinced that what we find written in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants is an irrevocable promise which Grandfather Nature cannot break, neither can it be moved. That we may become skilled, especially at this university, in receiving the servants of the Savior, including one another, is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Laws and Blessings. We've just heard from Arkant Crookston. After the break, we'll return with David A. Thomas for a law upon which all blessings are predicated. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Laws and Blessings. Next is David A. Thomas, BYU professor at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at the time of this address, titled, A Law Upon Which All Blessings Are Predicated.
2: It's a privilege to stand before you at this podium today. This is not an occasion that I anticipated or aspired to, but it is indeed a privilege, and I welcome the opportunity to share my testimony of the Savior and some things I have learned about being His disciples. On April 8, 2008, I noted, as I always do on that date, the anniversary of my appointment as a faculty member here at BYU, beginning 34 years ago on April 8, 1974. I was not among the original group of faculty hired for what was then the new J. Reuben Clark Law School, but I was the first of the non-originals. And now with the passage of time, it's fun to be the first of a non-something, I can tell you that. (laughs) With the passage of time, I have become the longest continuously serving member of the law school faculty. I am profoundly grateful for the many students and colleagues at the law school and university generally who have enriched my life. I first became a student of the law at Duke University Law School in September 1967, nearly 41 years ago. Only four years earlier, I had received my patriarchal blessing, which included the admonition, study the laws of the temporal affairs of men— as well as of their spiritual affairs. I began teaching here at BYU Law School less than two years after completing law studies at Duke, and when I reread this patriarchal blessing a few years ago, I realized that most of my legal career had indeed centered on the study of the law. My remarks today will touch on the laws of our temporal affairs as well as the laws of our spiritual affairs. Our scriptures contain dozens of references to both temporal and spiritual laws. The Lord declared that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given you a law which was temporal. Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verse 34. Joseph Smith was urged by the Lord to obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms, of laws of God and man, and all this for the salvation of Zion. Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 53. Lawyers love citations. And to all of us the Lord commanded... Let no man break the laws of the land, for he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verse 21. And thus we proclaim in the twelfth article of faith our commitment to obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. The great prophet Lehi taught us that without the law of God there would be no sin, righteousness, happiness, punishment, or misery. And if these things are not, there is no God, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 13. Alma affirmed this by teaching that there is a law given, and a punishment affixed, and a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth. Otherwise, justice claimeth the creature, and executeth the law, and the law inflicteth the punishment. If not so, the works of justice would be destroyed. God would cease to be God. Alma chapter 42, verse 22. Whatever else we learn from these scriptures, we learn that one of the important godly attributes is adherence to law. However, it is important to realize that the law is not only for inflicting punishment. One of my favorite scriptures is the passage that teaches us how the law is also the gateway to blessings. There is a law, irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundation of this world, upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God— It is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 20 and 21. One of the really important things we should think about each day is the blessings we have received and whether those blessings seem to be coming to us in response to our obedience to laws and commandments of the Lord and to remember to express our gratitude for that. I think this is helpful to think about, even though, as King Benjamin put it, we will always be unprofitable servants— that is, always in debt, to our Father in Heaven. Mosiah chapter 2, verse 21. I don't know that there is a list of specific laws with specific blessings attached to them. But as we go through life, we come to understand some of the important cause-and-effect relationships between our conduct and our blessings. Let me mention a few examples that are important to me. One, liberty and the rule of law. Each year at our law school convocation in the Provo Tabernacle, We conclude our services, as we have this morning begun our services, by all standing and singing America the Beautiful. The sights and sounds of that experience have always stirred me, as they did this morning, even after participating in this for over 30 years. One of the verses teaches an important law upon which all blessings are predicated. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control. Thy liberty in law. Thy liberty in law is a phrase that we might also describe as the rule of law. After a career of observation and study, it is clear to me that all of our human rights and civil liberties, indeed every blessing emanating from this promised land, are predicated on our success in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law, as we declare in our 12th article of faith. In those nations where the commitment to the rule of law is weakest, the suffering of the people is the deepest. Strengthening the commitment to rule of law is not only a national or community undertaking, it is a challenge we all face individually. We do not disobey or ignore or flaunt our laws without weakening the fabric of our society. If our laws are not wise, we have well-known processes for addressing those flaws. One of those processes is wise participation in our electoral events. Thus Mosiah taught, Therefore choose you by the voice of the people, judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers and which are correct, and which are given them by the hand of the Lord. Now it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right, Therefore this shall ye observe, and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Mosiah 29, verses 25 through 27. 2. Blessings Predicated on Health Laws Another law upon which important blessings are predicated is found in the 89th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, familiar to us as the Word of Wisdom. This revelation shows forth the order and will of God in the temporal salvation of all saints in the last days. Doctrine and Covenants section 89 verse 2. It tells us things to avoid and things to do. Then it states what almost sounds like a legal principle. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angels shall pass by them as the children of Israel, and not slay them. Amen. Doctrine and Covenants, section 89, verses 18 through 21. Everywhere we go, we see the negative and positive consequences of this law on the physical condition of our people. Less visible but more important is the effect of this law on the spiritual health of the saints. Our obedience to this law has much to do with whether we are inviting the Spirit into our lives or leading lives that are not welcoming to the Spirit. Somewhat related to this law are three minor laws I learned about when I was required to begin military service midway through law school. When I arrived in Vietnam on August 15, 1969, I was assigned to the Army's 1st Infantry Division in active combat. When I was assigned to my unit in the division, I looked like this with my M16 automatic rifle in one hand and my steel helmet in the other. Because it was too dangerous to travel on the ground, I was told to get in a helicopter. The helicopter is what we call a Huey. The Hueys had about eight seats for passengers like myself, little canvas seats like camp stools. Four of the seats faced forward and two on each side faced out to the side. These Hueys had a machine gun mounted on each side, and when they flew, one soldier manned each machine gun. The side doors, like doors on a van, were pulled all the way back so the machine gunners could operate their guns if needed. I took my place on one of the side seats, facing out to the side, with a completely clear and open view because the side door had been pulled all the way back. With my rifle in one hand and my steel helmet in the other arm, I took my seat, looking forward to my first ride in a Huey helicopter. In a great roar of its engine and a rush of wind from its rotor blades, the chopper lifted off, rising straight in the air for about 200 feet. Then, as it prepared to turn in the direction of where it was taking me, it leaned over, or banked steeply, to my side, so that I was looking almost straight down out of my open door. At that moment, I realized, one, that I had forgotten to fasten my seatbelt. <laughs> Two, that both my hands were full of important things that I didn't want, did not want to drop out of the helicopter my rifle and my helmet. Then realization number three happened. I started to slide out of my seat and drop out of the turning helicopter. What happened next? Just before I fell from the helicopter, my feet discovered that each of these little campstool-like seats had two little straight aluminum legs. My left foot found one of these, and I wrapped my boot tightly around it just as I was about to fall, and I managed to hold on until the helicopter straightened out. You will not be surprised to learn that I now always fasten my seatbelt when I drive. (laughs) And it was on this occasion I learned some new things about the law of unintended consequences, about Murphy's law, if anything can go wrong at will, and about the law of gravity. Number three, blessings predicated on the law of obedience. Indeed, obedience is its own law. In the summer of 1847, tracks were first made by the creaking wagons and dusty, weary members of the Pioneer Company of Latter day Saints blazing the trail to the Salt Lake Valley. The tracks are found in a remote corner of southwestern Wyoming, away from human activity, and it is at this spot that Brigham Young fell seriously ill with fever. Over the next 21 years until 1868, tens of thousands of wagon and handcart wheels and pioneer feet, adult and child, wore on these tracks, so that now, over 160 years after that first pioneer wagon train, in places the vegetation still will not grow back and the tracks are still discernible. These faithful immigrants, these blessed, honored pioneers, symbolize a commitment to obedience that must forever remain an example to us. Among these many thousands were my wife Paula's second-great-grandparents, Hans and Maren Rasmussen, from Denmark. They were prosperous farmers when they accepted the restored gospel in Denmark. They responded eagerly and obediently to the call to come to Zion. After selling their farm, they paid their tithing, made a substantial contribution to the Perpetual Immigration Fund, and then equipped and funded themselves and about 30 other Danish saints for the journey to Salt Lake City. With a covered wagon and one of the two wagon trains accompanying the ill-fated Willie and Martin handcart companies, they started their journey too late in the summer of 1856. Among their several children were two-year-old twin girls. Soon after they got started, one of these girls, named Christina and known as Stina, came down with a simple childhood infection and, unable to be treated on the trail, died in August 1856. As if this tragedy were not enough, two months later, they were caught in the early and ferocious snow and windstorms that caused so much terrible suffering for all in the William and Martin companies. They also lost almost all of their goods. Shortly after arriving in Salt Lake City, the Rasmussen's were called to go south and help settle the pioneer community of Ephraim, Utah. Soon thereafter, they were sent further south to help settle the community of Richfield, Utah, where they lived in a dugout. A year later, they were sent back to Ephraim. As recorded in the Rasmussen family history, here they established their home by digging a dugout to which was added a two-room adobe house later, and which was the home where this one-time rich young Danish convert couple, spent the remainder of their lives. Here they raised their family. And though they never enjoyed even the luxury of a cook stove, they often gave expression to their joy of having been found worthy to make these sacrifices and to live among the saints of latter days. They often said they would gladly do it all over again if necessary, to enjoy the blessings of their deep testimony of the gospel. Many, many blessings are predicated upon the law of obedience. Blessings predicated on the laws of teaching and learning by the Spirit. Another law upon which blessings are predicated is found in the admonition that sounds like a law that the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith, and if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. Doctrine and Covenant, section 42, verse 14. Our scriptures refer to spiritual gifts of knowledge and wisdom. c 46, Moroni chapter 10. And to admonitions to seek learning by study and faith in C 88 and 109 I understand from these scriptures that both teaching and learning are gifts of the spirit and that they are enjoyed as spiritual gifts when we do our very best to invite the spirit into our lives Maybe this has already been really obvious to most of you but there is in fact a connection between spirituality and success in our academic endeavors So what sort of obedience may yield the blessings of enhanced teaching and learning The scriptures tell us, One, we should be humble, that is, not prideful in our learning. And the wise, the learned, and they that are rich, and who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom, and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. We should be, number two, receptive to the teachings of the Spirit. D&C section 50 tells us, He that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. We should be number three obedient to the commandments. Second Nephi chapter nine verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine tell us when they are learned they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God. To be learned is good, if they hearken unto the counsels of God. I am sure there are many things we can do to enhance our teaching and learning. Here's one I've had personal experience with. When I was in my early teens, I made a personal commitment to avoid doing homework on the Sabbath and to do all I could to keep my Sabbath days holy. Despite all of the circumstances that have challenged and continue to challenge that commitment, I know I have been blessed specifically in academic endeavors and in my professional life since then by whatever success I have had in honoring that commitment. This same cause-and-effect relationship pertains to all of our other efforts to obey the commandments and serve our God and fellow beings with faithful diligence. Sometimes when I am asked by prospective law students why they should choose our BYU law school over other good law schools where they may have opportunity to attend, I am tempted to answer, Well, at BYU, you could have me as one of your teachers, of course. (laughs) More seriously, perhaps the best answer I can give is this. This is a place where you will be surrounded by faculty and students who are striving to bring the Spirit of God into their lives, and that therefore the spiritual gifts of teaching and learning will be found here in great abundance. It certainly has been my privilege here for over three decades to be surrounded by friends and colleagues, both students and faculty, who are persons of great learning and wonderful intellectual attainment, who are also persons of faith and wisdom. Nowhere else on earth will you find that blessing in such abundance. So here are some principles of the law upon which these blessings of teaching and learning are predicated. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes and encompasses all knowledge and all truth. Ultimately, all knowledge is revealed through the medium of the Holy Ghost. Increased spirituality and spiritual power increase access to and mastery of knowledge. Teaching and learning are gifts of the Spirit. Therefore, greater spirituality and greater spiritual power should help us expand our present abilities to teach and learn. Because my intellectual powers are enhanced by my spiritual powers— It is no coincidence that that my most productive and successful years as a teacher, scholar, and lawyer have been in those years when I have tried my best to give a full major service in the intense Church callings of a campus stake presidency as bishop of my home ward and of a BYU ward and in the other callings that have come to me. I am edified by the example of my very busy law students who accept and serve faithfully in heavy Church callings while successfully pursuing their law studies. Number 5. Blessings Predicated on Humility and Being Not Weary in Well-Doing As in all else, we are led by the example of the Savior. During his mortal ministry, his disciples tried to protect him from the press of people who sought his healing blessings. The disciples rebuked those who brought young children in the hope that the Savior should touch them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and he said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. A similar incident occurred when the Savior visited the Nephites after his resurrection. In the 17th chapter of 3rd Nephi, we read of the Savior's ministry among the people who had survived the great destruction that had occurred at the time of the resurrection. After teaching many important doctrines throughout that day, he prepared to leave saying, My time is at hand. But then he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude, and, behold, they were in tears, and did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. And he said unto them, Behold, my bowels are filled with compassion toward you. Have ye any that are sick among you? And it came to pass, all the multitude with one accord did go forth, with their sick and their afflicted and their lame. And they're blind, and with their dumb, and with all them that were afflicted in any manner. And he did heal them, every one, as they were brought forth unto him. And then he commanded them to bring their little children to him. After praying, he wept, and he took their little children one by one, and blessed them, and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. There followed then the marvelous miracle when these little ones were encircled about with fire. All of this happened after Jesus had spent a full day teaching the people. This reminds me that we've been asked to be not weary in well-doing, Doctrine and Covenants, section 64, verse 33, and we have the Savior's example before us. As we seek to be the Savior's true disciples, this is one of our constant challenges. A month ago I was reminded of this Christ-like quality as I learned something about the life of Abraham Lincoln. In May of this year, I had occasion to visit the recently restored Lincoln Cottage, a house about three miles north of the White House, where Abraham Lincoln lived with his family for five months a year during the years of 1862, 1863, and 1864. Each day he rode, usually on horseback, from the White House to this sanctuary, where he could escape from the hot and muggy weather, from the crowd seeking his personal assistance, and from the gloom of the recent death of his son, Willie. He accomplished much important work in this cottage, not the least of which was his drafting of the Emancipation Proclamation. Late one hot summer evening in 1862, Lincoln was at home in the cottage trying to calm his mind on the eve of a significant Civil War battle about to be fought on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. He was also relieved to be momentarily free of an especially persistent woman who had called on him in the White House that day seeking a promotion for her husband. Nevertheless, late that evening another private citizen, having been aided in finding the President by a Treasury Department employee, was admitted to see Mr. Lincoln. His story was poignant and wrenching. His son-in-law, a Union officer from New Hampshire, had been wounded in recent fighting. The officer's wife, the visitor's daughter, had made the journey from New Hampshire, located her husband, and helped him recover. As they journeyed by boat back to Washington, the boat collided with another boat at night and seventy-three passengers drowned. The wife was one of those victims, and her husband barely escaped with his life. The visitor had returned to Washington to locate and return the body of his daughter to New Hampshire. He sought access to the area of the disaster, which had been closed because of the pending battle. The Secretary of War had gruffly refused his request, so he was now seeking He was now before the President, seeking intervention. Here is what happened according to accounts published some years after the incident. Without making any interruptions, Lincoln listened to the visitor's long and tragic story. At the end, however, instead of displaying his legendary generosity, Lincoln reportedly said, Am I to have no rest? Is there no hour or spot when or where I may escape this constant call? Why do you follow me out here with such business as this? Why do you not go to the war office where they have charge of all this matter of papers and transportation? The embarrassed visitor tried to argue his case with the exhausted president, but to no avail. He was dismissed curtly and sent back to the city without any relief. The next morning, Lincoln appeared at the visitor's hotel, full of apologies. I was a brute last night, he confessed. I fear, sir, that my conduct has been such as to make it appear that I had forgotten my humanity. You say that one of the unfortunate ladies was your daughter? As reported in the visitor's obituary in 1885, the two men sat down and talked as familiarly as old friends. Great tears rolled down the president's careworn face as he heard the story of the shipwreck. He then wrote a mandatory order to the Secretary of War requiring him to furnish a pass— Transportation to the scene of the disaster, and all necessary assistance to find the bodies. The result was that after cruising along the shore in the vicinity of the wreck, and after much inquiry among the inhabitants, the place where the bodies had washed ashore and the place of interment were discovered, and they were brought home to their native New Hampshire. Seeking the Spirit in our lives consists of much more than keeping basic commandments. Yes, it is important that we refrain from transgression but there is a higher law. For me, this higher law is well expressed in two familiar scriptural passages. The concluding statement of the 13th article of faith proclaims, If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. And in the marvelous divine instructions recorded in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we are told, Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. If we faithfully strive to do these things, I testify that we will have within our grasp the law upon which all blessings are predicated, helping us along the way to happiness in this life and exaltation in the next. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Laws and Blessings, with thoughts from Arkent Crookston and David A. Thomas. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter.